0: Welcome back to A Better Brand of Happiness. This is session 14. And as we have been doing all the way back since session 10, we continue our study of the paragraph of Scripture in Philippians chapter 2 that encompasses verses 1 through 11. I've said over and over again now that uh, I believe Philippians 1 through 11 is one entire unit of Scripture, but there's a lot packed into that one unit of Scripture, and so we're taking... Um, Many sessions to walk through and unpack everything, or as much as we can, in that section. Just to review very quickly, the big idea statement that I have composed for this paragraph, that I have tried to discern from this paragraph, is, "...because we are united with Christ, who valued and served us over Himself, we should value and serve each other over ourselves." And to um, further explain this big idea, we've walked through each of the subunits in this paragraph of Scripture. In verses 1 through 4, we saw that Paul taught that we should value and serve each other over ourselves, and of course that language draws from the last part of the big idea statement. And so um, my big idea statement ends with us valuing and serving others above ourselves, but actually Paul's argument starts with that. And um, the reason why my big idea is written the way it is is because of my first words there, because we are united with Christ. That's where all of this flows from. And so that's where the section begins. And so in verses one through four, we saw that uh, we should value and serve each other over ourselves, and we should do this because according to verses one and two, Christ has given us powerful benefits that we share with every other Christian. Remember, Paul said, uh, we have this encouragement from being united with christ we have this comfort from his love and so on and so because these benefits are distributed to all christians that means we share all of this in common and so paul's um, teaching that we should love and serve each other is based on christ has given us all this now we share all this in common so we now have the ability to uh, love and serve one another and so that brings us to the next part so because in christ we have so much in common with every other Christian. According to verses 3 and 4, we should purify our motives. Remember, do nothing out of um, these these sinful motivations, selfish ambition, or vain conceit. Rather, after purifying our motives, we should retrain our minds. Verse 4 says, in humility, value others above ourselves. This is not normal. This is not the way we're programmed. Normally, we look out for our own interests first. But Paul says, as Christians, because of all that Christ has done for us, We should prioritize others over ourselves. We should retrain our minds along those lines. All right, And so then, in verses 5 through 11, we turned to looking at why every believer should think this way of other believers. Why should we serve others above ourselves? And it all goes back to the example of Christ. We should think about others the way Christ thought about us, according to verse 5, which says, "...in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus." All right, and so Paul here is explaining why we should go to the trouble of purifying our motives and retraining our minds and putting others above ourselves, and that's because Jesus went first. This is how he treated us, according to verse 5. And then verses 6 through 8 go into detail about this. Paul explained exactly how Jesus valued us above himself in verses 6 through 8. And uh, specifically, what Christ did here is he did not cling to his rights as God. Verse 6 says he was in very nature of God, but he didn't consider the rights and privileges of being God something that he should cling to at all costs. Rather, instead of clinging to his rights and privileges that were owed to him as God, Jesus emptied himself according to verses 7 through 8. And we spent an entire session last time talking about what it means that Christ emptied himself And the point of that is simply that it, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean Christ literally emptied himself or even spiritually emptied himself of anything. It means that it's just a figure of speech of talking about how he humbled himself. Remember the comparison? We don't say somebody emptied themselves, but we do say somebody's full of themselves. All right, So that's kind of the opposite image. And so Christ, instead of being full of himself, emptied himself. That is, he humbled himself. For our good, and so I spent all of session 13 talking about that phrase, made himself nothing, or emptied himself. And as a quick summary, that phrase doesn't mean that Christ ceased to be God or lost his any of his abilities as God. Instead, it means he lowered himself in humility. So that brings us to today's section, our new material for today, which continues um, explaining verses six through eight and how Christ valued himself above, or valued us above himself. And according to verse 7, we see Christ's method for lowering himself. How did Christ exactly do this humiliation or his hum, this humbling of himself, this emptying of himself? Well, verse 7 tells us, it says, rather he made himself nothing, that's the phrase he emptied himself, how? By taking the very nature of a servant. Now the word by in the NIV's translation here introduces um, the means by which Christ humbled himself. It it tells us by what means Christ humbled Himself. It answers the question, how? And if you think about this in human communication, this is often how we answer how questions. If, for example, you said to me, I'm going to humble myself by serving you, okay? Then I ask you the question, how are you going to do that exactly? Okay, Because it's one thing to say you're going to serve somebody, it's quite something else to do something that serves them. And so if you say you're going to humble yourself to serve me and I say, how are you going to do that? Probably the next word out of your mouth is going to be the word by. You're going to say by washing your car, by shining your shoes. I don't know what, but whatever is in your mind specifically to do is going to be the next thing you say. Okay. And Paul, and Paul here is doing the same thing. he's, answering the implied question, how did Christ humble himself? How did Christ empty himself? How did Christ demonstrate this humility? Verse 7 says, he did so by by taking on the very nature of a servant. This explains how Christ humbled himself. And the phrase translated, the very nature of servant is the same Greek word as we saw in verse 6, that Christ was in very nature God. All right? And so what this is saying is that not that Christ acted like a servant, but that he actually became one. Just as he was actually in very nature God, so by um, humbling himself, Christ in actuality became a servant. Now, let's think about what this means for a moment. We don't have slaves in our culture. I'm glad for that. I'm grateful for it. But we know enough about other cultures that we understand what being a slave was like slaves or servants don't have rights they're owned by somebody else and so they can't control really anything about their actions or about their lives they can't do whatever they want they can't go wherever they want they can't do it whenever they want all right What they do and how they do it is completely controlled by somebody else's choices, that is, the choice of their master. And so slaves do what their master wants them to do. In other words, they put the master's wants and needs ahead of their own because they are slaves. Or to put it another way, slaves treat their masters as if the masters are more valuable than they, the slaves, are. Does that sound familiar? That's what Paul said here. Treat others, consider others, value others above yourselves. This is what a slave does he at least acts in a way as if the master and the master's interests are more important than his own. And so to put this in context of Jesus, Paul has been teaching us that Jesus is God. He was God and is God, and and therefore he had all the rights and privileges due to God, but instead of clinging to those rights and privileges at all costs, he humbled himself and surrendered those rights and privileges by becoming a slave. And how did he become a slave? Well, the last part of verse seven gives us that answer. It gives us the most specific answer to the question, how did Christ humble himself by becoming a slave? And that is, verse seven says, by being made in human likeness. Now, the phrase translated um, in human likeness is a way of signaling that Christ became human, but with some important distinctions from the rest of humanity, okay? And so let me just stop right here and say this. Everything Paul teaches in verses 5 through 11 are drawn on certain assumptions about Christian theology. Now, Paul knew these believers in Philippi. He taught them much, if not everything, they knew about who Christ was. And so he could draw on his own teaching and assume that teaching for what he had to to say. Now, whenever we teach or talk with anybody, we all make certain assumptions I assume that you can speak English because I got up here and started speaking English. I didn't ask you if you could and I didn't teach you how to speak English first. I assumed it, okay? And so all of human communication is built on some level of assumption. And the more you know about what somebody else knows, the more you can assume and then build on that assumption. Everything Paul says about Jesus here is built on certain assumptions about Christian theology that most Christians today know That the Christians in Philippi did know and should have known because Paul taught it to them. But it's important for us to unpack those assumptions and understand what they're saying. All right? And so Paul here is is telling us when he says that uh, Paul, or that Christ, I mean, was made in human likeness, the end of verse seven, some people have misinterpreted this to mean, well, Jesus just appeared to be human. He wasn't actually human. You see, throughout human history, People who came out of the church have um, gone in many different directions uh, away from what Scripture teaches in multiple ways. But one of them revolve one or some of those revolve around the person of Christ, who He was. Some people have grown up in the church or come uh, and made a profession of faith in Christ, and as they study Scripture, they come to the conclusion that Jesus was not fully God. All right, that's an erroneous assumption. We talked about that a lot last time. That's wrong. But some people have thought that. Also, over time, people have studied the scriptures and tried to understand what the Bible teaches, and they've come to a different conclusion that, yeah, Jesus was God, but he wasn't actually fully human. And that also is wrong. That also is an erroneous assumption. And some people have looked at this language in verse 7, that he was made in human likeness, and they've used that to reach this conclusion. Well, maybe Christ wasn't actually human. Maybe he just looked like a human, okay? But it's critical to understand that Paul here is not teaching that Christ was less than human. He's not teaching anything about the humanity of Christ at all. He's assuming that the Philippians know about the humanity of Christ because he taught them about the humanity of Christ. And I'm assuming, actually I'm not assuming, it's why I'm going into detail about it, but I should be able to assume that all Christians understand that Jesus was fully human. Now, let me, So let me just talk about that. Again, I'm not going to go into detail defending this. I'm just going to draw on things you already know about Christ. Christ did not appear to be human. He was human. He was conceived in a human body, a woman's body, just like every other human on earth. Now, his conception was different. It was miraculous, but it was a conception inside the body of a woman, just like every other human was being born or, or who has been conceived, I guess, until test tube babies came along, all right? So Christ um, was conceived in a woman's body like every other human being. He was born from a woman's body like every other human being. And he lived himself in a human body. Christ's physical body looked no different in terms of its properties. If you cut it open, the organs would all be there in the same place as every other human body. Okay, and so it's critical for Christian doctrine to maintain and teach that Christ was both fully divine and fully human. Compromise on either one of those doctrines and you go into false doctrine. And Paul here is drawing on that assumption. He's, saying, he's not saying that Jesus appeared to be human when he really wasn't. He's saying, if you looked at Jesus, he had every appearance of humanity because he was human. But becoming human was actually a step down for him. It was a step of humility. Take any other creature, a bug, an animal, if you were somehow to be able to transform that into human, that would be a step up, right? But if you're God and you exist eternally and you were uncreated and uncaused, and you became human, that's a step down. It's a step of humility. And, and, the, and Paul is saying, this is how Christ humbled himself for us. He set aside his privileges as God and became human. But Paul goes on here to say in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, that Paul was made in human likeness. And he does it to indicate that Jesus, was also, although human, was different than every other human. That's why Paul uses this language, Made in human like this. He's not trying to deny the humanity of Jesus. He's trying to say Christ was a special type of human being. And what does that exactly mean? Well, Philippians two doesn't go into detail about the differences between the man Jesus Christ and every other man and woman on earth. But many other passages in the New Testament teach that Christ was different from other human in two senses. But they're they're two senses, but they're related. Okay. First, he was God. All right. No other human being can say that, or I mean, they, they can say it, but they can't genuinely say it. It's not true of anyone else. And so Christ, although human, was distinct from every other human because his spirituality, the spiritual component of him, was deity. Flowing from that, unlike every other human being who's ever lived, Christ was sinless. Because he was God, he never sinned. And again, no other human being can say that and be true. No, it's not true of any other person. And so when Paul says in verse 7, at the end of the verse, that Paul was made, that Christ was made in human likeness, that's what he's trying to indicate to us. He's trying to come in and indicate that Christ was human, but he was in a separate class of humanity, because as God, he never sinned. And Paul doesn't go into detail about this, because it's not his point. His point here is not to teach about the humanity of Christ. His point is to use the humanity of Christ to teach another point, that is, about the humility of Christ and how he served us. And so that's why Paul uses this phrase, human likeness. Now verse 8 goes on to tell us that Christ was not done humbling himself by becoming human. Becoming, going from God to becoming a man, the God-man, yes, but becoming human, that was a step down for Christ. That was a humiliating act. But that wasn't all that Christ did in terms of his humiliation. That wasn't the only way he humbled himself. Verse 8 tells us that Christ was found in appearance as a man. And like the phrase in verse 7, human likeness, this phrase, found in appearance as a man, has caused some to think that Jesus wasn't actually human, but merely looked human. But again, he was conceived and born just like every other human being. He had a human body that needed food and sleep. It bled when he was wounded and died when he was crucified. Okay, and so Paul here again is is drawing on the fact that Christ was human. He's not trying to prove that Christ was human. And so Paul's word choice here in verse 8 then is not to suggest that Christ only looked human, but that he looked human because he was human. And then the method of this humility is given to us in the final verses or the final phrases of verse 8. So look at verse 8 again. Being found in appearance as a man, looking like every other man then. What did Jesus do? He humbled himself even more by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It tells us that although it was a humbling for Christ to become man, Christ continued to humble himself even more once he became a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Now, the, the wording here is, is telling too, and it's, and it's rich with theological significance, and again, we have to draw on everything else the Bible teaches us about Christ in order to see the richness of Paul's language here, the language of being obedient to death. What does this mean exactly? Well, first, as God, Jesus Christ would not ordinarily be subject to death. God is life. We call this the aseity of God. It's not that God is alive. God is life and gives life to everything that lives as creator, And so death is outside the realm of God's experience. And as God, Christ was not subject to death, normally speaking. It would take an unusual circumstance for him to experience death in any way. Second, even though Christ was a man and men are subject to die, Jesus was a sinless man. And although we think of death as being common to humanity, it was not originally that way. God did not create humanity to suffer death. Remember the promise to Adam and Eve is, if you do what God commands, you will live. And so death is not, it it, it is common to humanity now, but it wasn't that way by creation, by God's design. Instead, death is a penalty imposed by God for sin, as a consequence for sin. And so although even though since Jesus was God, he was not ordinarily subject to man to, to death, as a man, death became a possibility for him, but as a sinless man, he really did not deserve to die, nor was death an inevitable consequence of him becoming man. And so the Bible teaches all these things in many other passages, and Paul knew that the Philippians knew them, and so he's assuming their knowledge of it. And so what he's saying now in verse eight then? is that when Christ became obedient to death, this was another step of humility for him. It was a conscious step downward for him. It was another act of service that Christ did on our behalf. And so Paul uses the language he became obedient to death because he was not subject to it ordinarily. In other words, it was a free choice of Christ to die. He chose to become obedient to death. He wasn't, death really had no power over him, outside of his choice. And so why did Jesus have to become obedient to death if he was God and sinless, and if death is a consequence for sin? The answer is really at the core of our faith as Christians. You can't become a Christian without believing this doctrine. There are other doctrines you have to believe too, but this one's really core. And the doctrine I'm talking about here is called the substitutionary atonement the substitutionary atonement of Christ. When when Paul says that Christ became obedient to death, he is alluding to this doctrine we call the substitutionary atonement. And here's the logic or the teaching behind the substitutionary atonement. Because death is the consequence for sin, everyone who sins must die. The Bible teaches this in many passages. Every human being except for Jesus has sinned. So therefore, all of us must die. We are all subject to death for our sins, because death is the penalty for sin, according to the will of God. It is the wrath of God for our sins. Now third, Jesus subjected himself voluntarily to death, even though he didn't have to. Why? Because as our substitute, he took the penalty that we deserve for sin. That's the substitutionary atonement. When Jesus died, he, though being innocent, took the penalty of death in his death on behalf of sinners. He substituted for us, taking the penalty of death, the wrath of God. And this is how Jesus showed us what humility is all about. He did a lot of things he didn't have to do in order to save us. He didn't have to become human, but he did. He didn't have to die, but he did. He did all of this as our, and all of these are demonstrations of his acts of humility. Now, the final phrase of verse eight gives us even more detail about the death of Christ. It says, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And this too is a further act of humiliation. It's a further act of submission. It's another demonstration of the humility of Christ. Dying on a cross is even more humiliating than God becoming a man. And it's even more humiliating than a a sinless man dying. When Jesus died on a cross, it was particularly humiliating for a couple of reasons. First of all, dying on the cross was a Roman method of execution. This is not how Jewish people were executed. I mean, if you're going to be executed, the method of your death probably doesn't matter all that much. If it were me, I want the most painless and quickest way to die. But the point is, it's humiliating to be executed for any reason, right? But in Jewish methodology, the way that you executed a person was not to hang them on a cross, but it was to stone them. And as barbaric as that sounds, it's actually more humane than dying on a cross because one of the first things that was done was they would drop a large rock on your head, Okay, And so they put the lights out quickly. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he died that way because he was dying according to a Roman method of execution, not a Jewish one. Anyone who was crucified on a cross in Rome was being publicly displayed as the worst kind of criminal, the worst kind of sinner. And this would be humiliating for a Jewish man to die this way to die as a subject of the Roman state, according to Roman executionary methods. I I might add that it was a particularly gruesome and painful way to die because you would live for hours in agony until you could no longer raise yourself up to take a breath and you would die by asphyxiation normally. and So dying on a cross was a... Was a humiliating way to die because it was a Roman method of execution, a very brutal one. But it was also a curse, according to God's law, to die on a cross. Way before Jesus came and before anybody ever thought about hanging someone from a cross, God's law anticipated the coming of Christ and His death by this Roman methodology. And and God pronounced a particular curse on anyone who died hanging from a piece of wood. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy chapter twenty one. Verses 22 and 23. This is Deuteronomy. This is Moses. This is one of the first five books of the Bible. This is thousands of years before the Romans even came along, much less invented crucifixion. But here's what it says Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23 says this If someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, huh? you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it the same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Thousands of years before the Romans even existed, much less invented crucifixion, God said someone who dies is a capital, um, you know, capital way because as an offense for capital murder. And if you hang them on a pole, they are under the curse of God. Paul said, or the, the Scripture says, Moses says, the Bible says, there's an extra level of humiliation to dying this way. And that's how Jesus died. He humbled himself not just by dying, but dying on the cross. The worst possible way someone could die, humiliating them before all of Rome, the Roman Empire, before all of the Jewish people, and before God himself. And so the fact that Jesus died for us and the way he was killed emphasized his humility. That Christ voluntarily subjected himself to this is amazing. It's an amazing demonstration of how humble Jesus is. So this brings us to the end of verse 8. And in the next session, we'll finish this paragraph of scripture by looking at verses 9 through 11. But before we do that, let's take some time to put this all together, put this whole passage together up to this point together and apply it to ourselves paul has been teaching the church in philippi that they should in the words of philippians 2 3 in humility value others above yourselves the way to do that according to verse 4 is to look to the interests of others not to the interests of yourselves this is all that paul is trying to teach in this section stop being so selfish start being centered on others that's what he's teaching All of this is in the context of joy. This paragraph is teaching that the way to true joy, the better brand of happiness, as I've titled this entire series, is to put the interests of others ahead of yourself. This is um, counter-instinctual. It's against our instincts. Our instincts are to put our goals, our desires, our pleasure ahead of everybody else's. We think that's the best way to happiness, right? But the scripture is teaching, no, no, no. A much better way of happiness is to humble yourself, put your interests aside, and put somebody else's interests ahead of your own. That takes a lot of humility. You're going to have to lower yourself to serve other people. If you're full of yourself, that's going to have to change in order to serve other people. And that's what Jesus did. Although he could have been full of himself in a proud sense and deserved to be full of himself and deserves all the worship that all of creation can give him and does give him jesus deserves all of it but he stopped receiving that worship that adulation that praise by becoming a man took immense humility for jesus to do this why did he do it well because if we were going to be saved if we were going to be delivered from the wrath of god that we deserve for our sins then God himself would have to care about our interests so much that he would be willing to surrender his rights as God to become man. Then he would have to surrender his rights as a sinless man and die. All of this is what Jesus did to save us. He put aside his interests to make our interests happen. Now he is our Savior and our Lord, but in addition to those things, he's also our example. He sets the template, the tone for how we as a church should function in all of our relationships with one another. Just as he humbled himself to save us, we should humble ourselves to serve each other. Now, what are some ways you could serve others in your life? Just going to suggest a few. Maybe you can use these directly. Maybe you can see other areas that are similar to the ones that I'll mention. Maybe serving others in your life would consist of swallowing your pride to tell someone else about Jesus Christ. That is, to evangelize them, to give them the gospel. Now, this is swallowing your pride. Why? Because they might reject the gospel. And in rejecting the gospel, they might conclude that you are unkind and unloving for saying that they're sinners who deserve the wrath of God. That's kind of an offensive message, apart from the Spirit of God causing you to believe it. They might conclude that you are a total Jesus freak and a person whose friendship is not welcomed by them. It could, cause, it could cost you a friendship, a relationship. And so evangelizing someone you know in this way is an act of humility because you have to swallow your pride to do what's best for them. Hearing the gospel is what's best for them. You have to put aside your interests, your interests of being liked and admired and being a friend For their interests, the possibility of salvation. Here's another example. Maybe you've been asked to serve in the nursery and you think that's beneath you. You've you've done your time. You've raised your kids when they were infants. You put your time in, in that mode. And so now maybe you would, I don't think you would say this. I don't think anybody would, no Christian would actually say this is beneath me, right? But maybe that's really your reason for not wanting to serve in that way. But what about young parents? who need to hear the word of God without distraction and need to have a feeling of security that their infant is going to be cared for and looked after by someone who is loving and kind and will watch over them? What about young parents who might even need a break from having to tend to their babies all day? Could you lower yourself to serve a person for an hour to an hour and a half maybe, every now and then, not even every Sunday, not even every week, just from time to time? Isn't that an act of humility to serve someone else's interests ahead of your own? What about serving an Awana? The kids in our church need leaders who will love them and teach them God's Word, or maybe not Awana, but also teaching one of our children's Calvary classes or teaching in our children's church ministry. There are all kinds of ways in which adults in our church could serve the children of our church by teaching them the Word of God. Are you beneath? Is that beneath you as a person? Is it too much to ask? What about in your marriage? Does your spouse need something from you to grow in his or her Christian life? Or just not to be overwhelmed by the day-to-day responsibilities and tasks that you could do, you could lower yourself to help out, but you're not willing to do so. Wouldn't that be an act of humility? What about using a skill that you have to help around this building, to help maintain and repair this building. Yes, you've got a lot of projects at home that need to be done on your own house. We all do. But maybe humility would call you to put those projects aside for now, to serve us all, because you have a unique ability that maybe the rest of us don't have or few of the rest of us have. You could help make our building more, attractional, more attractive, more functional, more useful by taking some time to serve All of us as a community with the skills and ability that God has given to you. Our culture tells us the consumer mindset of of our world, the the, um, advertising model by which products are marketed and sold, all tell us that living at the center of our own reality is the best way to happiness. They tell us that if we buy this product for ourselves, then we'll be happy. It'll save us time, and so we can be happy because we have free time that we didn't have. It'll make us more attractive, and so that'll make us happier, and on and on and on. The Scripture tells us that a better brand of happiness comes not from putting ourselves at the center and asking the rest of humanity in the world to revolve around us like planets revolve around the sun. Instead, the Scripture tells us that a better brand of happiness, the best brand of happiness, is to put others at the center. Christ preeminently, of course, but in serving Christ, we serve other people. This is a better brand of happiness. Have you learned to humble yourself? Have you learned to put others' interests ahead of your own? This is a better brand of happiness.